Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Farhan, excited to have you on the show. Pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting. Well, this is the second time we've tried this show, so fingers crossed the internet connection holds up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this one should be better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you because you're someone who I respect from the Harvard Business School where we did our MBA together. And what's interesting is that you have been an early executive at Grab. You've been understanding a lot about the different spaces in Southeast Asia. And now you're off doing your own startup. Right. Well, I guess I'm privileged. And I think executive is a stretch. I wasn't an executive yet at Grab. But I think pretty privileged that I could join Grab early on when they were still building their operations and then started scaling up in Indonesia specifically. Yeah, and then got a chance to fly to the Philippines and then help their business for a year before then flew to HBS. And then that's where I met you, right, Jeremy? It was a year and a half ago, right? During the conference. Yeah, amazing. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. What were you like growing up? Sure. So I spent a pretty long time in China. I moved to China when I was 15 years old. I did my undergrad and also worked there for a year. I did mechanical engineering. But then I later found that that was not my passion. So then decided to jump ship and did investment banking instead. So I was doing equity research for two and a half years, both in China and also in Indonesia. It was in 2015 that I flew back to Indonesia and then just built my career from then on. When I was with one of the securities, I guess to be exact, in Indonesia, this green helmet, green jacket thing started appearing on the road. It just caught my eye and I was an early user, was an early adopter, I would say. And I was fascinated by the kind of service and also the pricing, the predatory pricing they offered. At one point, I felt amazed because I only spent less than a dollar to bring me back and forth to my house. It's only five kilometers distance, so it's impossible. I felt bad for the driver. And a lot of times I tip the driver. But what I realized in three months time, actually the riders could buy a new motorbike. And that's what made me really curious about the business. And then I started searching, later on decided to join Grab. So I moved to Grab May, June 2016, and then was in charge of expansion, basically building their business from the ground up. Got a chance to travel around Indonesia and then build networks, learn tons of things from talking to the local drivers, talking to government officials. And even one time our office got raided Early in the morning, 8 a.m., just woke up. And then one of my team called me that five, six trucks coming into the office full of police started asking our legality and stuff. It was a really great experience. I learned so much. But then in 2018, I got a new project. So then I was sent to the Philippines, basically managing their PNL 
for the transport business. So I was basically in charge of all the cities except Manila. It's a great experience. You know, got to learn different cultures, different way of working with people. And then in 2019, got accepted to HBS. So then flew there, did two semesters at HBS. However, when the pandemic hits, decided to fly back to Indonesia. And then during my summer period, started Sagari. Little did I expect. The business just keep on growing and then we later on get invested. And it's up to this point right now. Amazing. And tell us more about what was it like? Why did you choose to work at Grab? You know, first thing is the experience that I told you, right? I was so curious about this business. And then what amazed me even further is investors, like prominent investors like SoftBank or all the big shots, they poured in like billions of dollars. I think for Chinese Indonesians, my family at least, the way I grew up with, they always told me like, if you don't have a profitable business, then why you should go to work? And this kind of business model is totally different. Actually, investors are pouring money for you to burn in order to get market share. That draws my curiosity. And that's why I decided to join Grab. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when I was interviewed at Grab, back then the interviewer asked me, what kind of role do you want to do? He could create any roles for me. So I said like, that's good. I want to be an entrepreneur. So I want to learn on how to launch a business. That's how I finally got my launcher position. Yeah. And what was it like being a launcher? It's great. When I first joined Grab Indonesia, we were only present in four or five cities. Within one and a half year, we were present in 100-ish cities. So I personally traveled to around 50 cities around Indonesia. And the beauty of it is I grew the team from only myself, grew it to a team of 200 to 300 people and spread across Indonesia. So being a launcher, I would say I enjoyed most of the parts, long working hours. Every Monday morning, you went to the airport, you took the earliest morning flight and Friday night, you came back and then you're going to spend like your weekend in Jakarta. And that's it. That was my routine for 60, 70 weeks when I was in charge of expansion. I really love my role there. I could expand my network. I could meet a lot of great people from different backgrounds. I could enjoy their food, culinaries, and at the same time, learn on how the Southeast Asia Decacorn works, learn on how to manage their data and how basically tech startups are different to conventional business. And what was it like growing it from like yourself to 200 people? That must have been a crazy amount of growth. What was it like? How do you feel like? It's a huge challenge, Jeremy. Being a banker, you used to work alone. You're basically a solo performer. But then when you have to lead a team, then your leadership style needs to adjust. Back then, I was only 25 when I joined Grab. And the only leadership experience I had was managing an Indonesian student organization in Shanghai. Wasn't that huge, wasn't that big. It took time for me to build confidence, to build trust from the management team of Grab. So that also helps me being mentored and then slowly given more and more headcounts. Having all those factors, I think, kind of built my leadership skills. Even until now, like there is still so much things to learn, HBS, lead class. I think that is one of the most great classes at HBS. 
still, every day, even until now, I learn so many new things, and especially about myself. What did you learn about yourself? Well, things like what really drives me, and then what pisses me off, and what kind of people that I can work with. These kind of things sounds like arbitrary, but it's crucial for you to be a leader. So, do you have any good stories about the time over there? One of the most memorable stories I had at Grab was I got blackmailed. It was my second month at Grab. My job back then was to launch Makassar. It's in Sulawesi. It's the biggest city in Sulawesi, I believe. And ride-hailing business wasn't present at that time, so it was totally new. It was totally nascent. But the amazing thing is, when I was there, it actually coincided with the tragedy that happened in Jakarta. Where Uber drivers started fighting with ride-hailing drivers, and that built the awareness of ride-hailing in Makassar. So then, when I arrived there, one of the things that I did was to meet with the taxi driver leaders and offering them on what kind of things that Grab could offer and how technology could help them. But then I think they've seen the bad news and how ride-hailing companies killed their business, and they don't want to share their price. That was the first day I arrived, and then I talked to them. The second day, early in the morning, I got blackmailed, and he said, "Okay, this is my land, and if you still want to launch Grab, well, you know what will happen. I've killed people in the past." That's what he said. Okay, that was like my first life-threatening experience I had. Being a banker, you're basically safe, right? You're in a safe environment. The only thing that you're facing every day is Bloomberg, is your two monitors. But this is a real threat. So luckily, I had a great manager. We devised a proper strategy. We decided to hire a pretty influential person to help us lead Grab operations. And this person, he's pretty connected. He knows the mayor. So we can basically cool down the situation. The next thing I knew, actually, I didn't go to Makassar for at least a month. I just wanted to make sure that my life is safe. Yeah, I just did that remotely. <laughs> wow, that's one heck of a story. And I think what's interesting about that story, of course, is talking about how you were thinking about it, how you felt about it, how you reacted to it. How common do you think that was like, scaling across so many different cities and geographies in Indonesia? It was a huge challenge, Jeremy. I think that's a great question because every city in Indonesia has different cultures and has different reception towards technology. And that experience happened to me in Makassar. But then as my team grows, even to what I am aware up to this point, there is at least two more incidents that happened towards my team members. One in Kalimantan, and then the other one in Java. I guess Grab is one of the pioneers. Bringing technology to this second and third tier cities, where acceptance towards technology is super low, and then these people are pretty territorial. They have been there for decades, and they feel it's their territory. And who you are, who are you, bringing something that is nascent, and then you're going to threaten my income. I would hope that the situation is already different now, where technology is already pretty much accepted. Actually, they also reminded me in 2016, 2017. Every week, there is always a story about either riots or fightings between conventional drivers and also ride-hailing drivers. It's crazy. Yeah, I totally get in. I was also at another client 
working in Hainan, and we definitely had some interactions with the local underground <laughs> dynamics as well. <laughs> so a lot of talking to smooth things over, I can tell you that. <laughs> so I think that's an occupational hazard, especially in emerging markets where technology is about bringing the future, but it also often means changing the status quo. And so what tips do you have for people for market launches in Southeast Asia? Because there are so many market launches now. The interesting thing about market launches is everybody stays there for a while and everybody moves on to a new job. So it's always a new cohort of market launches <laughs> for different companies. So what advice would you give to market launches who are thinking about a job and whether they should take the job? I think to answer your question, there's two parts. One is there is always a new cohort of market launcher. I think that's true. That is totally true. I agree with that statement. Because as a market launcher, you need to be 24-7 on the ground. Even if you're not physically present, but then you need to be ready receiving bad news. So I guess the nature of the work is pretty stressful, I would say. And if the launcher is already married, or if he or she already has a kid, then it's even worse. I don't think it's possible. So that's why there is always a new generation of market launchers. But yeah, to answer your second question on what kind of advice to give to market launchers, I would say if you are someone who has this entrepreneurial mindset or spirit, being a market launcher is one of the best ways, at least for me, to explore my leadership skills, explore your business acumen, and just enjoy every moment because... The next thing you know, you wake up in a foreign city, knowing no one, but then you're slowly building your network, building your credentials. And up to now, I have no regret. One of the best one and a half years of my career, even until now, I get a pretty huge responsibility. I guess this also being part of an early joiner for an early stage. Back then, my manager, he was a great manager, I would say. He's a bit hands-off and the thing I asked him during our weekly meeting, so how much budget do I have to basically run the city? He said like, just propose any budgets you think the city will need, then I'll approve. So from there, I made tons of mistakes, like throwing too much or throwing too little money and then adjusting the driver's incentive abruptly. I think that's kind of responsibility that you're going to get being a market launcher because it's a new city and you will be the one who is responsible for that city. And then the management will probably see after a few months if that city is worth to have operations there. If it's not worth it, then they'll probably kill it. But at least within those few months, you can really explore. You can be creative, basically treat it like your own child. Because there's an interesting transition, which is you're setting to launch the market. And then you just talk about there is that decision point about how much more to invest or keep going. And I think after that, that's where the general managers start coming in. So what would you say is the difference between the market launcher and the general manager mindset? Market launcher, I would say, is more about speed, execution speed. While general manager is more about excellence. So that's a brief way to put it. And for me back then, it was more about launching cities after cities after cities. But then... I wouldn't say it's perfect. It's far from perfect. At least our operations back then was messy and there was a lot of frauds too. But I think being a launcher is also a good transition to be a general manager because 
you know the operations from the ground up because you build the operations. And having someone coming in to basically fix your city, that is a pretty good way to learn because, okay, this is what I did. And I think that is not the best way to execute. That is a huge mistake and we need to rectify it. Because sometimes it's easier to comment on others' works, but then when you are actually the one who built it from scratch, you see that, okay, this is a decision that I made, but then later on, this doesn't fit or this doesn't go along with what the company wants. So then you got to learn rather than just criticizing, but then you don't really know why did this guy or this predecessor made this decision in the first place. Sounds like GMs and market launchers always have a lot to debate about. <laughs> I think it's a dynamic and it's the way how an organization is set up. KPI is always one going to the right, one going to the left. So that's what I learned. And that's what I implement in Sagari on what kind of KPI to set up and then what kind of people do we need. And at the end is achieving towards your company's goal. So what advice do you have for general managers to work with market launchers? Well, I think first thing for sure, GM needs to have a grasp of what the market looks like, especially for Indonesia, because there is a lot of nuances on the ground. Different city has different languages. So that's the kind of thing that we have to admit. And being someone that is remote, probably sitting in the central office in Jakarta, or looking at Bundaran HI, but then things are not as rosy as in the second or third tier cities. I think one of the advices is as a GM or probably someone who is from the management team, it's super important to spend your time, explore the city where the company operates in. Because without looking or without experiencing the local cultures, I don't think someone can make a great decision. Indonesia, even though it's one country, but it's big, it's really big. Even for me, I still struggle trying to adapt my language. Even though I'm a local Indonesian, people can easily differentiate. Okay, this guy comes from Java and then they have a different stereotype for people from different city in Indonesia. I mean, I love what you're saying because you're really contrasting what the actual reality of Indonesia is versus the perception. And there are so many people, as you know, at Harvard and America who are so excited about Southeast Asia and Indonesia from the outside. And then you and I have grown up in Southeast Asia and we're like, okay, some of it's true, some of it require a bit more reality. What would you say are some like misconceptions about Indonesia? That's a pretty tough question. Misconception about Indonesia in the US, is it? Well, Indonesia tech. Indonesia tech. Okay. At least this is based on my personal experience. I think people who are broad or far from Indonesia or far from Southeast Asia, they feel like this developing country needs a lot of help in terms of technology. And only with the help of technology, then this kind of developing country can leapfrog to become a developed country like theirs. But then the problem, even for unicorns or decacorns in Indonesia, let's say, for example, I would say 60, 70% of the operations are done offline or done by on the ground team. I would say technology is only an enabler, but it's not the core business. Whereas when we compare to tech startups in the US, technology is actually the backbone of their business they still can survive without having an exceptional or a strong operational team. But for a developing country like Indonesia, I would say good execution on the ground is even more important. 
Because in terms of technology, you cannot over-engineer. And I think I can share a bit on Grab operations. I think Grab was one of the first to introduce cash payments for their four wheels business. They were basically replicating what works in the US and then just plug and play. The problem with second and third tier cities populations, credit card penetration is very low. So relying on technology alone is not enough. And you cannot force people to apply for credit cards and then just for the sake of using your service. That was one of the hyper-localization initiatives that Grab did. Back to the topic, the misconception is, again, you need to know the market, you need to be on the ground, you need to talk to the local people and understand what they have and understand what they really need. If you over-engineer, if you sit in a great office you have without knowing the local context, there is very little chance that you can succeed. That local understanding, do you have to be a local to understand it or can you learn it? I don't think you need to be a local, but then you need to focus. At least if you don't speak the language, then you need to be able to pick up the language. Not so advanced, but at least the day-to-day language you need to be able to pick up. And then be focused, spend full time. For me, because I spent eight years in China. And when I got back to Indonesia, even my bahasa is already pretty much weird. I used to speak more Bahasa in a formal way. But then when you speak to a majority of the Indonesians, they feel like your Bahasa is weird. And they feel like you are another foreigners. For me, it took at least six months working full-time on the ground to get a sense of what my country is like now. It has totally changed. And I'm talking about Jakarta. I left Jakarta in 2007 and then returned here in 2015. It was already totally different. It doesn't need to be a local that can understand the local nuances. But as long as you be focused, spend your time and resources, you're able to pick it up. And one interesting thing is that you've done all this learning and you've also learned how to become a founder as well. And so what has that transition been? Because you mentioned that being a market launcher has been good training to become a founder And of course, it doesn't prepare you fully, as we both know. So what would you say are some differences between being a market launcher versus being a founder now? What have you learned is the difference? You have so much more responsibilities on your shoulder. That's one thing for sure. From anything, from fundraising, from hiring, from setting up the business vision strategy. I used to get my hands dirty and I like to get my hands dirty because that's the only way I can learn. But then as a founder, I think... For every stage of the company, there is always a different type of founders required to run the business. And I totally agree with that statement because for the first three months, I was actually the one who go to the markets and then procure things, work in the warehouse till late night, and even a lot of times until early in the morning. As our business evolves, or as our business grows, then I cannot do the same thing like this again because the company needs me to right now define the company's direction. For example, like, okay, we have maxed out our capacity in this warehouse, then what is next? What kind of warehouse do we want to build and where? So that requires me to switch my hat and be more strategic. I would say that HBS gives me the kind of learnings on how to be a founder, meeting a founder like you, Jeremy, and then being mentored by you in one of the summer rock entrepreneurship session. Yeah, I remember the Summer Fellows Program. Summer Fellows Program, right. Talking to professors. That kind of built my mindset on how to be a founder. But it's not enough at all. 
right now already got used to receiving bad news. Sagari is a pretty labor-intensive business, so we have a pretty huge workforce. Every day there is always just this kind of news like accident and fightings. And this is where, as the founder of the company, people are looking at you. What kind of decision you want to take? What kind of things you will say? It will really define the company. It will really define the culture of the company. And for me, I think showing empathy is important, is crucial, especially for a country where kekeluargaan is crucial. It's like everyone is your family, even though you're a total stranger. So then it's something that is tangible, but it's appreciated by them. Do you spend time when there is a funeral or anything or, or people get hospitalized? They will look at you. So when I was a launcher, what I did doesn't really define the culture of the company because culture is pretty much top down. It's not bottom up. But then right now being the founder, it's really top down. So basically what I said, what I do defines the culture of the company. And one day, one of our co-founders mentioned to me, you look at your team members, WhatsApp, a way of communicating. They kind of reflect how do you communicate with them? I'll give you an example. One of our co-founders, he used to add like haha at the end of every sentence. He's trying to instruct someone, but then in a more polite way, he tries to put haha, trying to neutralize the tone. And then the next thing we know, most of his team member uses the same thing. So that was like one of our first realizations. Everything we say actually defines our team members. And now when I look at my team member, the way he talks, the way he communicates, that actually reminds me, oh no, is that the way I treat them? And that's how he is acting right now. Let's talk about that dilemma about learning how to give culture, deliver culture, build culture. How do you think founders should do it? Honestly, I think that's a billion dollar question, Jeremy. <laughs> I think you'll be the more better guy to answer this question. Honestly, up to this point, I have no idea. You need to try to balance between fundraising, balancing between growth, and also balancing between setting up the culture. It's tough. It's tough. And no wonder a lot of people said it's a lonely journey. I'm really grateful and I'm privileged to have met these two other co-founders. At least my journey is tough. It's an uphill battle. But I know that at the end of the day, when I face hardships, I have someone to rely on. Could you share and tell us about time that you have been brave? Well, I think making the leap from having this employee mindset to become an employer mindset is dilemma moment that I had. Am I ready at this age? Can I survive this? Being an employer, basically there's thousands of employees relying on your decision, relying on your day-to-day -day decision for their family to eat. So in my lifetime, I have always been someone that is pretty much comfortable stepping out of my comfort zone, trying new different things. But then this test of shifting from being an employee to an employer is something that I still cannot digest even until now. Every morning I wake up, wow, I have this many workers that are relying on what I do today. And that's going to shape the direction of the company. And of course, investors have put so much confidence in us. So I really need to make sure that I don't disappoint them. How do you handle that stress or that balancing act? Well, I think having a support system is helpful. And for me, I always split between having two different kinds of support systems. One is internal and then one is external. 
and probably like some of the sensitive things you cannot talk to your external mentors, then you bring it to your internal mentors or at least support system. They don't have the visibility or they don't have the substance to make a good decision. I always try to balance. And again, I think I said this a lot of times, I'm lucky to have great mentors who always spare their time every time I face difficulties. And then they're always helpful, giving me advice, connecting me to people. And then your support system, your internal support system. And life is so full of ups and downs. And for me, every day is Monday. I don't have any weekends. And I think it's the same thing for you too, Jeremy. You just need to de-stress sometimes. After you de-stress for several hours, you need to go back to what you are targeting for this week or at least for that month. So I think having that kind of discipline really helps. If you could go back 10 years in time, all the way back to 2011, what advice would you give yourself back then? Up to this point, I would say I have no regrets. I think for every decision I took and for whatever life has brought me, that's what really makes me up to this point. That's what really shaped me in terms of being persevere and being hardworking. For every things that you believe in, I think there is always, it's not an instant thing. So there is always a way to get there and you just need to follow the process. I've always been pretty systematic in what I want to do. From day one, I always know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So what are the things, what are the stuff that is required? Of course, having mentors, having a great brother like I have who advises me on what are the things I need to take. One of the things that I, I can share with you, before HBS, I already wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I talked to one of the VCs, one of the top VCs in Indonesia. And he said, I know your undergrad school is a great one, but you're still made in China. And I think the connotation of made in China is still kind of negative in Indonesia. And he told me, you're going to have a hard time in fundraising because you don't have that kind of credibility. So that's what really made me, okay, I think I need to go to HBS. I really need to apply to HBS and then get the credibility to get to my next step in my career. And do you think going to HBS helped create that next step in your career? Definitely, yes. Of course, the H brand and the network that you build. And lastly, I think the professors, also the friendships. I cannot be thankful. Even until now, I'm still in touch with one of the supply chain professors at HBS who gave me a lot of great advice. His research spans across Africa, Asia. He shares a lot of great findings of what works and what doesn't work in those countries. And then we brainstorm and then try to apply it in Sigari. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Farhan, for coming on the show. I really appreciate that. And I'd love to paraphrase the three big things I learned from this conversation. The first, of course, was thank you so much for sharing about how you learned about scaling Grab Indonesia from many cities. In one sense, the number of cities that we grew, but also the number of market launches that were part of the team and how you pioneered that role and also a lot of the learnings and scary things that happened like the blackmail, which also turned out to be actually a recurring dynamic for not just you, but also for Grab scaling across multiple countries and cities, but also for many other technology companies scaling across emerging markets. And the second of course is I really love that advice that you gave around market launcher, really the dynamics around the fact that they are about speed and GMs are about excellence, I think was a great summary about the different priorities and also some great advice about 
whether you should take the job to be a bucket launcher and how to be successful on the job. And lastly, of course, thank you so much for sharing like a lot about what I call the founder reality, about what is it like to build culture, how hard it is, how to self-regulate, how to get balance, how to get mentorship, and a lot of the judgment that VCs may have on your past schools versus Harvard, but also what needs to be proven out in terms of culture and results. So uh, thank you so much, Varan, for coming on the show. Thank you for the summary, Jeremy. I hope that's helpful. And let's keep in touch. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.